This podcast is intended for entertainment and opinion. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you are experiencing a mental health crisis, please call 988 or use the resources listed in the episode description. To see the sources and other resources mentioned in this episode, you can visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming topics, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. And finally, please rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe wherever you listen to get new episodes as they post. Enjoy this episode! Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. I'm your host, Grace Fowler, and today's mini-episode is about the cognitive bias called survivorship bias. I figured I would do this one this week um, because Oppenheimer is coming out tomorrow. Well, today if you're listening to it today, but tomorrow based on when I'm recording it. And so it felt fitting to talk about a cognitive bias that was discovered during World War II, not by Oppenheimer himself, but by another nerd, Abraham Wald, who spent a lot of time doing math for World War II, and developed this idea behind what we now call the survivorship bias. And not to offend any of my Barbenheimer (laughs) fans out there, I will be doing an episode on Barbie after I watch it, but I have to wait for my support system (laughs) to be ready to go see that movie and really get into the, the details of it. So the bias that we're talking about today is survivorship bias. This is a type of selection bias that excludes failed cases, which leads us to hold a false rate or false view of the rate of success. So, for example, survivorship bias can manifest if we're looking at like tech companies that succeed and we come to incorrect conclusions about what makes those companies succeed without a company accounting for all the failed companies. So we might say, oh, look at all these successful companies. It means that if you want to have a successful tech company, you have to, I don't know what tech stuff is, but you know, like you need X, Y, and Z. But the reality is, is all of those failed companies might have also had X, Y, and Z, or might have had a fourth characteristic that made them fail. And we're not getting that data because we're only selecting cases that are successful. Another example might be like, If you've ever seen YouTubers who sell courses on how they got successful, it doesn't account for all the people who did the same thing that they did and weren't successful, or it doesn't account for all the people who weren't successful and maybe did something different that makes them more likely to fail versus the person who thinks these generic things made them likely to succeed. So in a nutshell, survivorship bias means we're missing a pretty big piece of the picture because we're not looking at the cases that failed or you know, didn't survive, hence the name survivorship bias. So the origin of the bias comes from a man named Abraham Wald, and I'm quoting from a book by Ellenberg um, that's called How Not to Be Wrong, The Power of Mathematical Thinking. It's cited on the sources page. Ellenberg wrote about Abraham Wald's involvement in World War II efforts and how he came to develop the kind of theoretical understanding that supports survivorship bias. Abraham Wald was a Hungarian, Austro-Hungarian mathematician who eventually was born in the Austrian Empire and then made his way to America and was working as a math professor at Columbia University during World War II. 
Because he was at the university during this time, he became part of a group that was called the Statistical Research Group, or the SRG. And it was kind of like the Manhattan Project, but just for math nerds. The Manhattan Project was the project that developed the atomic bomb and had a lot of people on it who were like physicists and were doing science stuff. The SRG was for people who were really good at like stats and used mathematical equations to better support the allied forces in doing things like figuring out best trajectories for dropping bombs or um, like flight paths that would be the most fuel efficient. At some point during the war, the military came to the SRG with a problem they wanted a solution to. The military was trying to figure out the best ways to put armor on planes so that they're less likely to be shot down, but they can't just put armor on the whole plane. That's really heavy, it makes the plane not fly as well, and it's also really expensive. So they brought this data to the SRG that had how many bullet holes per square foot were remaining on planes that had flown back after going on like bombing missions or whatever planes did in the war. The military's conclusion was they need to put more armor on the parts of the plane that had the most bullet holes, which was the fuselage. They looked at the data and said, well, there's more bullet holes here, so we should put the armor where more of the bullet holes are. The areas of the plane that had the least bullet holes was the engine. So when Wald took a look at this data, he said, wait a dang minute, if we only look at the planes that survived, that came back from their mission, then we should be concluding that the area where the most bullet holes are means that those areas don't need as much armor because all those planes survived. If you look at the data that Wald was presented with, then the fuselage actually can take quite a beating without damaging the plane or taking the plane down. If we were seeing planes come back with lots of bullet holes in the engine, then we could conclude that the engine can take a lot of bullet holes. But because the planes that came back had less bullet holes to the engine, you can mathematically estimate that the planes that went down had more bullet holes to the engine. Therefore, the engine is the part that needs the more armor because it's the most vulnerable or the most likely to be damaged. If you look at the amount of bullet holes on the engine versus the fuselage, you can come to two interpretations. Either enemy bullets never once hit the engines of planes, or every plane that got hit in the engine went down. It's pretty much impossible to conclude that bullets just never hit the engine. It's like mathematically impossible that at zero point during the war, an, an, a bullet never hit an engine. So it's mathematically and statistically more likely that the planes that returned were the ones who sustained less damage to the engine than the planes that went down. So this is why it's called survivorship bias, because the it's easy to look at the data from the planes that survived and say, oh, if they're hit here, then we need to uh, armor or protect those areas more. But the reality is, is it means a plane can survive being hit at those, po those points, and any points where it's not as common to find bullet holes are the ones that are more vulnerable. So Wald ended up recommending to the military that they should armor the engines of the planes, and that approach to building military planes was actually used all the way through the end of World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. His contribution probably saved a lot of lives because less planes were going down, and he used the data to be able to really back up and demonstrate the purpose 
of his theory. There is a famous diagram that illustrates this point that I will have as the cover art on the website if you want to take a look at it, but it shows how the bullet holes on the surviving planes were clustered in these certain areas and there are parts that are almost empty. There's no bullet holes. And your brain's first instinct is going to say, oh, where all the bullet holes are are where planes get shot down. But the reality is, is we only have that data because those planes came back. If we were able to look at all of the planes that went down as well, we were somehow able to recover them, you would see that the bullet holes on the planes that went down probably clustered around those areas that are different from the planes that came back. And so there is the crux of survivorship bias, right? We're ignoring important parts of the story or ignoring certain parts of aspects of the situation that lead to failure and making incorrect conclusions about how to survive or how to succeed in areas where if they're not going to work. So you might be thinking at this point, like, wow, what a great story that was. How does that impact my brain in the 21st century? Well, there's a couple consequences that this bias has for us. So I think it's important to be aware of this bias and how to slow down and think through it. The first way that the survivorship bias shows up in kind of the modern context is It's part of the reason why we overestimate the ability of one person to achieve greatness through hard work. Now, I talked about this a little bit on my succession episode, and I've talked about it in previous episodes about wealth, but there are these ideas in especially American society where we believe, oh, if you just work really hard, you can become successful, kind of the American dream. And people will hold up cases like Bill Gates and say, like, you don't even need to go to college. Look at all these successful people who have dropped out of college and, you know, made it. They've they've made it to becoming billionaires, establishing companies, you know, having global and cultural impact. But this is where the survivorship bias comes in is we're not accounting for all of the people who worked really hard and didn't become billionaires or all of the people who dropped out of college to try to start a company and didn't become giant tech conglomerates. The reality is, is that dropping out of college does not guarantee you success. And many of you listening to this probably know people who have dropped out of college and are not about to become the next Bill Gates. Now, I'm not saying that's because everyone needs to go to college or that college itself is also a ticket to success. It's just, in this case, we misattribute things to the success cases because they are successful. If we really look at Bill Gates's history or even any of the other billionaires like Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, you'll see that the common thread between them is that they had someone in their family who was able to fund them or give them introductions into certain industries that they needed to be able to take off. Most people who drop out of college don't have the family connections to these rooms where you're going to get millions and millions of dollars to fund your projects or get introduced to the head of IBM and have them, you know, fund your your tech company when you're just like a dumb kid who dropped out of college, right? Like the reality is is a lot of us work really hard and none of us are close to becoming billionaires. So the survivorship bias fuels these kind of like American dream meritocracy hopes that we have that oh, if I just emulate the people that I see that are successful, then I can become like them. When it's not accounting for all the people that did the same thing and are not successful. Because we don't hear about those people. We don't know where they are. There's not news articles written about 
the you know 40 other guys who dropped out of college to try to start a tech company out of their garage like no one's going to write about an an article about them so we don't know that they exist right they're not going to be famous enough so we don't know about their story but they still exist so that's part of when talking about the survivorship bias we have to be able to hold in our mind the thought or path that this might have led to failure Survivorship bias can also lead to a lot of problems when it comes to decision making. And some of this I pulled from an article by Krakow published in Psychology Today. And the impact that survivorship bias can have on decision making is it can lead people to taking much larger risks than they might have because they're emulating the people who have succeeded while ignoring the ones who have failed. So these types of risks could be something like if you're trying to become a comedian and you have a day job, quitting your day job to just do comedy full time because that's how the people who have made it did it. And that ignores the probably more accounts of people that quit their day jobs, become comedians and didn't make it. But we're only focused on the cases that, you know, survived or made it when they took that path. If you've ever watched American Idol, you would see a lot of stories like this in those first audition episodes where people would be like, I've sold all my belongings, you know, broken the lease on my apartment and drove out here in a car that broke down the second I got to LA because I want to be a singer and I have seen that people just like give up everything to become a singer and like this is what I have to do. That is a really big risk that is really only based on the success cases and not the failure cases. So the kind of conclusion here is that it's important to be able to take a realistic perspective when viewing success, success cases or role models. We need to be able to take into account paths that may have failed before we take big risks or make big decisions about our future. And it's okay that our brains have the survivorship bias, right? It's it's part of this kind of natural process of our brain developing heuristics or short rules to help us jump to conclusions faster for survival, right? All of our brains work this way. So it doesn't mean that you're doing something wrong or have a condition if you find yourself having thoughts that line up with the survivorship bias. The way to combat it and the way to combat a lot of cognitive biases is to slow down, examine your thoughts, examine the evidence for your thoughts, and try to seek as many sources of information as possible. Especially if we're talking about these kind of risk-taking consequences of the survivorship bias. I, you know, again, this isn't therapy. I'm not your therapist. I'm not giving you advice, but I think we can see how if we only look at one source, we only look at one story and then take a big risk based on that one story, it's not a guarantee that it's going to to work out. And most of the time we are forgetting that this is a special use case. This is not the norm or the base rate for what it's like to be in this situation. Whether it's something like becoming rich and famous or um, things like a lot of survivorship bias research is focused on like mutual funds and financial stuff, like, you know, making assumptions that, oh, my stocks are going to be good because they were good for these many people um, or this many mutual funds have succeeded, so therefore all mutual funds will succeed. 
survivorship bias can permeate a lot of areas. So it's important to, one, be aware of the bias, and then two, be able to kind of take in these more realistic perspectives and slow down to consider what's missing when I just look at one account or one case, what's missing when I only look at successes, how do I need to incorporate in the failures before I make my decisions. And so that is where I'm going to end it today with Mr. A- Dr. Abraham Wald and the survivorship bias. I hope that you enjoyed this one. I know it's been a minute since I've done a mini episode and I appreciate you listening all the way through to the end. I will see you in the next one. Bye-bye.